Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show, and this is our last episode before Christmas. Looks like we'll all be getting a very nice present under the tree. Looks like we're going to get tax reform. If uh, you've listened to this podcast before or you've caught my act intentionally or inadvertently on Fox uh, News Channel, you've heard me say it's important that Donald Trump not just talk about things um, in ways that uh, a lot of the American people agree with him. He's got to get some real legislative accomplishments. Uh, I think it was a mistake to start with uh, Obamacare reform. It didn't happen. I thought it was a mistake for Obama to start with Obamacare, too. And it did happen. It would have been better off if it hadn't. But um, this tax reform is a very big deal. And if he gets, and, 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 and this is a notch in the belt, which is um, you're going to hear from the president a lot about this. And, you know, I noticed polling lately. I just happened to tune into CNN. No, I'm not a regular watcher, but I, you know, stay aware of it. And I was surprised. I, I, I don't know if you, Chris, I don't know if you were, but 45% of people in the latest um, are in support of this, 40 to 45, and 55 against. Those numbers are up some. And, you know, given a lot, a ton of bad publicity from the mainstream media about this tax reform, uh, I'm surprised that the, the supporting numbers are that high. But who cares about the poll at this point? And the, the most important thing about this tax reform is its reality. When it becomes reality, it, there's a promise implicit in it. And the promise is things will get better. And things will either get better or not. More jobs will be created. Your IRAs will go up. More opportunity will be out there. More businesses will come back to the U.S. Or they won't. Where these things won't happen. If they do, um, if James Carville was right back when, it's the economy, stupid. Donald Trump is going to have a, a a big increase in his approval numbers. More important than polls, the country's going to thrive. So, you know, if the guys who designed this and are getting behind this and supporting it, the Republicans, including the president, are right, um, and this thing really will contribute to growth, it's a very big deal. It's a very big deal for the party, very big deal for the president, most important, a very big deal for the country. Did you want to comment, Chris? Yeah, the only other person I'd add to that list who it's a big deal for is uh, is your guy, Paul Ryan. I yes, mean, this true. is there, there are a lot of rumors now that he may step back from his speaker role after this, uh, but this would be his crowning achievement and something that he's worked on and talked about for years. He's talked about it for years with you, and... It, it looks pretty obvious that without his leadership on this, it wouldn't have gotten through uh, the way it did. So, you know, this is a feather in his cap as well. Right. Uh, right. No, in, indeed. I, I would only say this about, about Ryan. I think it's half the crown, crowding achievement. Um, I, 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 a little, little inside baseball here. I texted him about a week or two ago because, you know, we're still in pretty close communication, mostly about the Packers, but, you know, other <laughs> things too. And I said, okay, we're going to get this tax thing, it looks like. You're gonna, I hope you're going to turn to entitlements. He said, yeah, we sure are. Now, an election year like 18 is a tough year to reform entitlements, you know, to start cutting back. But if you're not cutting back on, you know, on, on, on people in the present circumstance, on Medicare, Social Security, but talking about the future, you might be able to get away with it. But the conversation has to begin. I think the tax cuts, tax reform is half of it, and I think reducing spending is a big other half. I mean, <laughs> I was going to say a bigger other half, but, you know, that would put my math skills in <laughs> Um But you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I may disagree with you here a little bit. I don't think they're going to touch entitlement reform unless Trump wins a second term. I think they're going to hope that the economy takes off after these tax yep. cuts and the tax, refor tax reform and then go for infrastructure and I think you're going to see that coming next I think they'll hold off uh, on any plans for entitlement reform until after the election. Infrastructure, I think you're right, boy, uh, you know that uh, that train wreck, uh, yeah. literally uh, in uh, in Washington uh, don't be shocked by the way if we uh, find out that there's some uh, you know, drugs involved in this there, there often are, I'm not saying there are here, but there often are in these accidents. Drugs, and, uh, you mean, just to clarify, by user, user drugs, as in the person operating the train. As opposed to? Oh, I mean, drug trade or... Oh, no, things. not a drug trade. No, I'm, yeah. I'm worried that somebody was on drugs or alcohol or something. Um, and, um, you know, this thing was going 50 miles an hour faster than it was supposed to be going. 
uh, just a horrible thing. I, I, I watched a lot of the commentary. Someone said it felt like being inside a, a, a soft drink can as it's being crushed. Can you imagine? My gosh. All right, folks, uh, let's move on. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. In anticipation of Christmas, I want to share with you one of my favorite stories of the year. It's a story of redemption. It touches almost all areas of American life. It's the story of Mike Lindell, the founder, creator, and CEO of MyPillow. Mike Lindell, Mike Lindell, I am so looking forward to this story uh, and for you all to hear it, is the founder of the Lindell Foundation. He is the producer and co-founder of Lightbeam Media, a Christian content production company. And you may know him as the founder and CEO of one of my favorite products in the world, MyPillow. I got six of them. Go to MyPillow.com, get your pillows in time for Christmas. Tell them Bill Bennett told you to do it. And I will say, as Mike says, you're looking good. Yeah, you will if you sleep on this pillow. Mike describes his story as going from the crack house to the White House. Let's hear that story. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, folks, uh, I have been looking forward to this. As you know, I worked with presidents. I've met heads of state. I am nervous about this one because I'm excited. I- I'll just confess to you, I just love this guy. I just I just think this is a great guy. I think I, think I know him. I don't know him, but I think I do. And um, we want to tell this story around this uh, around this time of year. My guest is Mike Lindell. He's the founder of the Lindell Foundation, producer and co-founder of Lightbeam Media, a Christian content production company, and founder and CEO of My Pillow. And if you don't have one, get one or two, or like me, get six. Um, <laughs> I'm constantly telling my family about this and giving them pillows, and they're saying, "Dad, it's a great pillow, but you know, you're not Mike Lindell. You don't have to keep selling." But uh, I, I love the product. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me on. This is a, this is great. I wanna I wanna talk about um, my pillow. I, I don't know if you ever caught my act on the Megyn Kelly show when she was on Fox, but she would talk about you looking like Larry Sabato, and then I said, "Well, yeah, it reminds me of my pillow." And we got into a little yeah. theme, and she'd say, "Well, good night." I said, "I'm gonna be on mypillow.com pretty soon." Anyway, yeah, actually, she ended up with pills because of that. I sent her some, and she <laughs> sent me a thank you back. <laughs> How come I didn't get any? I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, we'll have to get you some, or you okay. already have some, but I'll give you some more here. I got my new sheets out. You can try some of them. They're awesome. Fabulous. Well, people keep stealing them. I mean, in the middle of the night, I say to my wife, why Why did you take my pillow? Why don't you get your own? Anyway, this is. <laughs> the, we'll get to that. This is not the Christmas story. Mike, tell, tell us about your story. It is extraordinary. I think you know, maybe you know, I was the nation's first drug czar. We fought hard against that stuff in the late 80s, early 90s. We really made some progress. We pushed back hard. Tell us, tell this audience about your own struggle, your own effort. Well, I had, uh, you know, everyone says, you know, when, or, you know, I was a cocaine addict, then a crack cocaine addict. In 1984, I started with cocaine, and then in, in the uh, early 2000s, it switched to crack cocaine, and uh, the paranoia is all these things that came with it, and and uh, I actually invented my pillow in 2004 and five. And people say, well, when did you quit everything? I said, 2009, January 16, 2009. They're going, what? And um, for me, you know, I had all this, uh, um, all this adversity, all these, uh, all these, all these hard, uh, um, hard um, um, challenges, a lot of it self-inflicted. And, uh, and uh, I got to be, up to January 16, 2009, and I had I had one prayer. I said, "God, I want to I want to be freed of these desires of the cocaine, alcohol, crack, all these things, uh, and I want to wake up in the morning and not have this anymore." And and then, uh, um, you know, I knew I knew the pillow was just a platform for a much bigger thing. And I woke up the next day and it was gone. It was like the the wow. desire was gone. It was just wow. absolutely the most feeling and and then interestingly enough two months later you know I, the, the desire for the drugs were gone but I still there was still you know addictions are just a mask for inner pain most of it coming from childhood father abandonment or you know from your father um, uh, maybe it's trauma mine was uh, I would my parents were divorced at uh, seven years old and I was uh, the oldest and I was thrown into a 
uh, being the oldest in the family at seven years old and all these responsibilities and everything. And, but two months later, I went to, uh, I went to this uh, Living Free uh, from our church, this treatment thing, and I got in there and I told the guy uh, at the door, I said, you know, I'm, I, I don't have the desire anymore. I'm, I, I used to be a crack cocaine addict and all this stuff, and I'm telling him all this. And I said, uh, I'm going to have a, a big platform someday, a book, a foundation, and, I'm t- this, and this is two months into 2009. And he went home that night. He says, you should see the guy that came in today. I said, you know, he must still be on crack. And, but what I learned in his, in his, from him, we got in there. It wasn't like any treatment thing I've ever been in. It was... Uh, it was... Um, they went back in time to what, where your wounds came from, what the, the addictions just being a mask for pain. And, and I learned so much in there. I'm going, wow, you know, the, uh, you're addressing this, not like uh, what other centers I had been to where they go, oh, you know, you spend this much money and you, your family is, you know, look, what, look how you've hurt your family and look, how you, look what you've done here. And you get out of those places and you have more shame and yeah. more pain and you just, yeah. uh, you know, and then you want trust, and you're not going to get trust right away as an addict. And so, uh, but I learned a lot there. Mike, um, one clarification: Did I hear you correctly? You were still an addict when you started to, to work on my pillow and invent it. Yeah, absolutely. I was a crack cocaine addict, and uh, you know, I did put all my my energy and everything into the pillow. Um, I was so protected by, I think God just carried me through some of these, some of those things to be able to function as an addict and invent the pillow and keep, you wow. know, keep the company going. And, and so many things happened. People tried to copy me, take it, um, you, you name it. One of your, one of your commercials shows kind of, you know, in different clips, you developing it. I imagine some of that's, you know, made up exaggeration. So, but, it, but the, this was no, the that's process. all true in that clip. It's all true. Okay. Everything in there happened. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Right. Even, even the child looking at you when you throw yep, the feathers yep, my, up in the my air. Daughter, <laughs> yeah. My daughter came up. That was when I had the dream about the logo. I got a lot of dreams from God back then. And the logo, my pillow, I woke up. I wrote it all over the house, this My Pillow logo. And one of my daughters, she was like 10 years old, came upstairs and she goes, what are you doing? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, I'm going to invent this pillow and it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the world and all this is going to help people. And, and I'm just telling her all this excited. And she grabbed her glass of water and she looked at me and she rolled her eyes. She said, Dad, that's really random. And she went back downstairs. That <laughs> really and, random. Uh, yeah, and then she, you know, it's the kids about a week later, you know, they're a couple months, then they get a month or two months, they're going, when is when is dad going to get over this pillow? And they're going, oh, it's That's just funny. a phase, it'll pass, it'll pass. That's funny. And That's uh, funny. I was just so excited in my passion for, um, and uh, we were we were dead broke. And, and when we, you know, I finally had the pillow invented after a year and a half, we had no money left, borrowed money to, you know, to, uh, to do a kiosk, and I was turned down everywhere. Everybody turned me down, and I finally did a kiosk, and and um, that, and we didn't sell many pillows there, but then uh, one wow. of the guys that had bought one there uh, the January of that year, he said, he called me up, he said, are you the guy that invented this pillow from Minnesota? And I said, yeah, and he said, this pillow changed my life. It created, you know, it's like a miracle, and and he said, I, I, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I said, sure. And I went in there and sold out. I learned, you know, huh. people actually responded to me, you know, that they, you know, telling them directly to the consumer, directly to people. And then other people come up and say, this bill is amazing. And it was just, it was just, uh, I let was me, able to support my family for like, you know, the next five, six years. Just let me that. ask, let me ask, because it's so interesting what you said, because uh, people be be interested. They think that when people were, are addicted, they're totally incapacitated. You weren't, right? You were functioning. You were working. But oh yeah, you know, a, but yeah, a clock you know, was running, right? You can't do this forever, right? Right. And and here's what here's what I want to say. of talk about addicts out there. The addiction is a lot of work. There is no harder work than addiction. You're out there and you're trying to yeah. not only hide it from people. You're kind of playing two lives, and you're. And you're, and then you're trying to feed your addiction. You're trying to, you know, it's a lot of work. And and uh, and people, um, you know, I say it to all the time. When I quit, when I when I quit, I asked a friend of mine. He had been he had been straight for three years. And I said, I had a couple of questions for him. I said, Dick, is it is it um, 
is it boring? And he said, no, but he says it sure is. And he says it sure is easier. It's amazing. You don't, things come easier because you don't have all this, you know, um, this extra work that goes along with it. And so, you know, when I was, when I was putting my, you know, into my passion, into my pillow. um, And one of the things too, is I was able to sell it at shows and stuff. This just got brought up to me the other day when I was doing a talk show and they, and I'm going, well, I, I didn't have to have, you know, any time that even when I had, um, for the first time ever, I could talk to people and I didn't need drugs at them shows. It was like, I was so passionate about the product. I was like in my, you know, I'm going, wow, I am, you know, I can do this without that. And, it, and so at least right. at the shows, you know, I would be able to function and talk to people not being on, not being on drugs, but Let it me- was still a constant battle, a constant yeah. So much energy to try and hide it from the you know from people and, and yeah. function. Let me let me ask you about that. While you were talking, Mike, we're talking to Mike Lindell, by the way, folks, founder and CEO of My Pillow, and go to mypillow.com to get your pillows in time for Christmas. I want to say that from time to time. I believe in the product very much. Uh, you reminded me of something I heard Chuck Colson tell me. Chuck Colson told me he told a young person who was addicted to pornography. He said, you know. Just, just pause and think. You don't have to do this. You're, you're under no obligation to do this. This weighs on your life. Takes a ton of time. Uh, quite apart mm-hmm. from you know what it's doing to your soul. You don't have to do this. And you were just, you were just saying the same thing. Two, two more questions about this. And I don't want to get stuck in the past, but it's so interesting. And the story gives hope to so many people. Did your wife know about this? Did your kids know? Did people? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The kids didn't know. We hit a very good. Moment. No, my wife was an addict too. Um, Oh and, um, you know, we were married 20 years. We ended up getting divorced in 2007. People were taking our company and, and it was lights out. We were losing our house and we were making pillows and, uh, basically shipping them in our living room. And she just couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, wow. I said, if, you know, I said, uh, it was a very amicable divorce. She said, I said, if I, you know, whatever comes of this, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll always take care of you. I'll always, you know, you you were a part of this trying to get this to, um, and uh yeah she was very much uh it was very uh my daughter at one time she says you know dad you know um said something about being a dysfunctional and i'm going i don't know what that means but we're not that you know (laughs) right uh, is it true mike uh, but it was i'm sorry go ahead but but the uh uh one you know um like i say that was part of the work you know to to uh to hide it you know even hide it from your kids you always say you're always I was always thinking in my mind, well, we can't do it here. They can't be here. We don't want to be seen here. For me, go. it was a, it was constant work to try and yeah. to try and hide that. Um, yeah, it's carrying the burden of another life, as you said. A, se- yeah, a secret one. Yeah. <clears throat> Is it true that uh, I've heard this? I don't know. If it's true that the, the dealers who you were uh, doing quote your business with spread word among themselves not to sell you anymore because you were in such bad yeah that's actually my book i have a book coming out called what are the odds and and oh man let me blurb that book let me blurb that book come back on when this book comes out let me do that oh absolutely and they uh and uh but in 2008 i had been up for two weeks and uh i was living downtown uh, minneapolis in the one of the worst parts of the city with i was just staying down there with one of my dealers and then all three of them showed up and and I go, what? They knew of each other, but they didn't know each other. And they go, I go, what are you all three doing? They go, um, you're going to bed. Um, nobody, we're not getting anymore. Um, you know, they. It was basically an intervention, and they're going. You told us someday, you know, you're going to quit, and and we, you know, you're going to end up. You know, they they wow. actually cared. They wanted me to quit because wow. I kept telling, them, I'm going to come back and help you guys and help people get off drugs. This was a in my head. Well, they did this intervention, and they and no. Uh, Two of them left, and the one sat down next to me, and he goes, he goes, how much you got left? And I and I showed him, and he sat there. He was like, till like two in the morning. And I looked over, and he finally went to sleep. And I went downtown, and walking the streets, and I couldn't with a hundred dollars, I couldn't buy five dollars worth. It was shut out wow. everywhere. The word wow. it got out, and I got back, and and he uh, he's sitting up for me. He goes, how'd that work out for you? And I was so upset, and he and uh, he took a picture, and he said, you're going to need this for your book he says it's going to change so many lives and my god two of those guys work these two of those guys work for me now they're uh no uh, kidding found jesus they, yeah they found jesus so they've uh they've come on board with my pillow and they uh this is amazing yeah. this is amazing yeah. so that you had yeah. an intervention from dealers 
it's just uh i still look back i'm thinking you know wow and and lord um, works in mysterious ways doesn't he absolutely and they i'll never forget that and it's part of my story and they uh um you know it's uh, it's pretty 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 amazing that they've seen you know i would always tell them you know someday this is going to happen i had a lot of people quit when i was even on drugs I would talk during, you know, I might be in a crack house talking, and they would quit the next day, and I'm going, well, what did I say? And I'm going, most people would think that you're a hypocrite. You go, well, you know, boy, this is bad as we're doing it, you know. But I, it wasn't like that, and it was like, it was, um, you know, I, I don't yeah. know what I said. I always want to put this. I hope it's in my book that it does get get the message across there but one it's of the ama- amazing who can who can carry grace though isn't it it's amazing who can be a messenger of grace you would never expect that from a drug dealer go no, ahead i wouldn't expect it in why you're doing the drugs you know yeah like a, a, go ahead a, i interrupted right? your train of thought but they there. but with the you know people that are on drugs out there they ask me all the time now you know with the uh, everybody knows you know with this huge opiate epidemic and stuff yep. and and yep. you know if you're a family out there and you have a, an addict Everybody also knows, you know, we've known people that have died now and everything from it. And, and you know, we, but we also know a success story. And, and to, go, to go to them, not even like an intervention, you're just taking the attic or yourself, the family, going over there. Um, how did you guys do it? You know, what, you know, how did, how, how is he, you know, get through this? And, and you're going to find out most of the time it was Jesus. And, but. If whatever it was, and now that attic, he goes, well, I don't accept that, but you planted seeds. Yeah. And now that attic, he's going to be out there, yeah. and you showed, him, uh, you showed him hope. You showed him hope. And that every, now that, you know, like myself, that I quit, we thought we were all doomed as crack addicts. And when I quit, every single person I know that was into crack at that time has quit. They, it was like proof of concept. Every you know, wow, Mike can do it. We can do it. There is hope. There is wow, hope. Wow, that is hope. amazing. That's an amazing, a really amazing story. And two of these former dealers work for you. I got to ask you, when's the book out? Uh, it should be by March. I've been working on okay. it for years, and um, it should be by March. And basically, what it, you know, you read the book. Um, you know, I've had these fourteen near death experiences. I've had, but I've had all these miracles. Um, you know, and I want every, you know, but it's in the book, you look at this is a one in a million, this is a one in a billion. Um, you know, I always look at mathematics, but well, if you combine them and go, you know, when does it become a miracle? When do you realize it yeah. had to be God? And, uh, um, we, um, the, all right. these miracles in the, that, that have happened to me by the time you read the book, if you don't believe in God, you, you better reread the book. And yeah. right. I think there's going to be so many people that can relate to it, whether it's addicts or, are just people out there and just basically a, pr- a proof of hope and, you know, showing people hope that, um, you know, this is what's happened in my life. People ask me all the time, was there anything you would change? Um, no, I wouldn't change anything if it's not where I'm at right now, you know, and Understood. that story is there and I'm not ashamed. You know, people say, wow, you get right out there with your, you know, with your Christianity, you get right out there with, uh, you know, your addictions and stuff. And, and, uh, or that you, and I want to tell the story if it's going to help people. I'm not ashamed, ashamed of it that I, I can't help it happen, but I, I want to show people you can be, that you can get through it, and there is a better way. Well, I'm working on this issue and trying to start a national organization on this opioid thing. Uh, the abandonment of children, uh, some places, as you know, there's no foster care left. There are no spaces left. Uh, this stuff is just this fentanyl and heroin now. This stuff is just right, killed 62,000 right. people last year. So they need to read your book, and they need to hear you, and hope you'll have a big book tour, and let me, let me help well, you. Well, I've got it. a big, yeah, I've got a, such a big media presence, and people come up to me everywhere in this country. They'll come up to me, and it's not, it's kind of changed. It's not so much now because you invented this amazing pill is because they want to hear the story and they have right. it gives them hope you know and that's that they especially you know the millennials the millennials they don't they don't buy pillows yet so much because they don't have the problems <laughs> that uh as yeah. they get older they yeah. yeah. with bad pillows yeah. but they they sure love that story that sure gives them hope and that's what i uh that's great i want to give them that there is a better way and they don't come up and say you're Larry Sabato, right? They say no, they don't. <laughs> no. no, okay, all right. Because that, that was Megan's thing. Well, I, there is something. Yeah, let let's let's talk about my pillow because there's something about. It. First of all, I, I'm a believer. I love the product. I sleep on two of them. Uh, is there anything wrong with that, by the way, doctor? Sleeping on two of them. 
What's Mike, that? Is there, I sleep on two of them. Is there anything wrong with that? Am I doing it wrong? Well, no. Well, you should you shouldn't stack them. You should just get. We have different levels, and uh, uh, we have different levels amount of pat, amount of the patented fill. So you can we could all, we could get you one that'll work for you. Just have one, and uh, okay. um, and then you adjust it as an individual. And that's you know I when know. I invented my pillow, I wanted it to for everybody to be able to adjust it to you to keep your neck straight exactly for you as an individual. And all these things okay. of. 100% made in the USA and Washington drying and 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. <laughs> Those things don't mean anything if it doesn't work. Uh, sure. No, uh, it no. works. I don't know why yeah. I do, too. I think it's just because, like, I'm a guy, you know, and if I order a cheeseburger, I'm likely to order two. If, <laughs> if one is good, two is better, but I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take your advice. But, but yeah, I want to yeah, get... No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I... Go ahead. I, there's something about your commercials. I mean, I, I'm very taken. You, you know, you're not a professional pitch man. I mean, no, I, you've become no, very good at it. But, my, there, but there's some, something real. Commercial after, after being five years on the road and six years and all this adversity, I, I got no. Um, and it got to be 2011, and I said, you know what? If nobody's going to take my pillow, and people, it's changing so many lives at these shows and state fairs. And I said. I'm just going to do it in my own infomercial, and and I want to make it real. And it was just a friend of mine. It was a half-hour infomercial. It was just a friend of mine, a real studio audience, a real audience. And we had no teleprompter, and we just did it. I had never been on TV like that, and I was scared, so scared. I'm not, well. I'm not, I'm not a speaker. Well, we did that. It aired at three in the morning. I was living in my sister's basement on October seventh, two thousand eleven, and. We had five employees, mostly just my kids and I, and in 40 days later, we had 500 employees. My gosh. And, my it, gosh. Uh, you know, I look back now, I say, how did everybody get their pillows in time for Christmas? That was a miracle in itself. What and, you uh, and now all the commercials you see, we do all those ourselves. We, you know, we, I want to make them truthful, real. Um, well, they the are. One, the, man in the, the one, the man in the mirror, where I'm by that, That's where I'm it. showing them on their bed. That where I'm showing them on their bed, and I go, Eat! I mean, those were outtakes I just did because I just yep. I wanted it to be real. And that's it. That's it. That's what I was going to pick up on. There, there's an authenticity to them. That's my favorite one. The guy looks in the mirror, and you're on the other side of the mirror. So you, you're not getting any sleep. And then I love the ending of that. You'd say, and you're looking good. You know, and, and I, knew, uh, I knew you would. I knew you. I knew you would. I knew you would. Yeah, that's right. And I knew you would. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about the company. Tell us about the success of the company. Well, How the many company, pillows have you the sold? Company, it's amazing. It's amazing. I have over sixteen hundred employees now. Um, yesterday, I went down and I was. Uh, we were, you know, getting pillows out in time for Christmas, and we. It was our biggest shipping day ever. And I went down there on both Sunday. I was there Sunday and Monday, and. Uh, uh, working hand in hand with them and just help, you know, guiding because these we get to numbers that you can't. A normal company wouldn't even know how to handle it. My son now manages uh, all the shipping and stuff, and we just and the two buildings. We have over over four hundred thousand square feet of factory. Um, this is in my home county. On my my hometown, I have all my uh, call center right outside my door. I go back to where your handshakes your word. And we sure. every customer, like it's my only customer. Sure. And if sure. every company went with that, and same way with my employees, my employees, we create careers at my pillow. We're like a help center. We don't have traditional HR where they put a little file on you to if you, yeah. you know, fill yeah. up your file and we're going to get rid of you. If we have if we see problems in my company deviation, we get the person help, or we you know it's like a help center, and uh, we you. become like a big family, and we don't have those problems that other companies seem to have. All right, give me some bottom line or whatever you want to tell me. How many pillows you got out there in America or in the world? We've sold uh, just shy of thirty-four million. <laughs> oh, gee whiz! It's amazing. <laughs> Future plans or, or anything else? So you said sheets. You going to go to other products? Yeah, I've got beds now. I've got a topper. These my these toppers that go on your bed. That everything I develop myself. That I I look at how it's going to help your sleep. It's got to help you. Good. And uh, any products I have, it's got to help you in some way. I'm not just doing it to make money. I mean, I've got, I wanted to help people to change lives. And I just feel to be a part that God's blessed me with this amazing platform. And I got to use it wisely to help people. And uh, we've got and the sheets, the most amazing sheets you'll ever sleep on. Travel so go to mypillow.com to find out about sheets and other stuff? Yeah, everything, oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Mypillow.com and the uh,
And you um, and you yeah. you give away a lot of money, don't you? Yeah, we've gave you know I give back. We've got so much with going on with my foundation where, and then also you know like. I don't know. We had that when there was the hurricane down there. We gave eighty thousand pillows. Uh, there you go. Um, there you, you know, go. I just I just want to get back and help. And we. Uh, I want to. Um, I'm, I'm reverse engineering what foundations are all about. I got tired of going. People don't trust them anymore. And I, sure. my foundation, we've developed where a hundred percent of your money goes to whatever the individual cause is, and you get to hear back from the difference you made in their life. I pay all the overhead and other and other donors do this. So. So you get the you get the, the the blessing of being able to give and trust that the money's going to get there, that the need is real, and you hear back the difference you made in their life, and it's just amazing. All right, I want to give a chance. We got guys listening, uh, engineers, my chief of staff, uh, Chris, Claude. I, I don't know, guys, if you can get on, but Chris, you can't ask about the Vikings. I know you're excited about the Vikings, but you can't, <laughs> can't bother Mike with that. But any anything, any either you guys want to say or ask. Uh, you this is uh, just a tremendous interview, Mike. You mentioned millennials, and I'm a millennial. Uh, what do you what do you say to millennials? I, you know, a lot of my colleagues, um, it's a tough time for a lot of them. Student loan debts, um, tough time finding jobs, uh, you know, substance addiction, the opioid crisis. Well, you know, what advice right. do you give to millennials that just resonates the, with them? Plus, they have attitude well, too, as you well, said, Chris. My, you know. my, what I say to them, you know, we've got to show them hope, and and uh, I think that's you know what's coming with my with my platform, I mean, you have to show if you're a millennial out there, once again, you, it's kind of like a mentor. Look at some of your other, there's our, there's some millennials doing really good and find out, you know, what's, what's different. What are they doing better? And especially if you, if you're mirrored in addiction, like I said before, go find out a proof of, you know, uh, not necessarily a mentor, but just show you hope that, okay, it's over here. And, and it's such a, um, I see it all the time. So many millennials, they come up to me and they, I mean, it's just one after another, you know, because they're just reaching out for hope and, and, you know, God, uh, God's got his hand uh, out there and they just, you know, I think they've got, you know, with God, any, everything is possible. And, uh, and they, I want to, they, the platform, I'm doing so much out there that I don't have time on the podcast to show about, you know, the help that's going to, that for millennials. And I think now, with where the country's going, I really think that they, uh, there is a lot of hope that there's going to be, you know, when you talk about jobs and all these, yep, and all these yep, things that yep, are coming, I bet, mean, the economy bet. is amazing right now. I, I have a lot of uh, almost, uh, I'd say 60, 70% of my workforce is millennials and they, um, they're just, once they're into that and they've got something that they can feel good about, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a different feeling. Now there's some that are, they didn't grow up like I grew up, like, uh, you know, where, where uh, you really, you know, like uh, even my own kids back in the day, I said, yeah, I used to do this for, two, you know, a dollar fifty an hour. And they go, well, why would you? Well, because we had to, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you know, no choice. Like, uh, let me ask um, you, you, know, you know, uh, let me ask you a hard question. I'm sort of a hard guy on this stuff. Do you drug test your employees? No, no. Okay. What we do at my employees, at my employees, we look for deviations and any, Okay. All my employees, 500 of them have my direct phone number, at least, at least. I pass it out. And they, they know if they see a deviation, let's say someone's a no-call, no-show, and he's got to be, you know, yep. something's different, or he, you think you suspect he's on drugs, they know if they, if they let us know um, that the person will get help. We're going to help them. We're going to reach out to them, and we're going to get them help. And they, it's like a... It, it's like it's All amazing right. how it works um they, right. they're reaching out for help anyway and we i personally will go down and talk and talk to some depending on the person or depending on what it's there and then they're just like wow you know this is to people they care it's like it's a different kind of a thing where you know we you know it, like once again if you're you know i said it before earlier on the show all of a sudden you're tested you're on drugs and you're, you lose your job and things just snowball into things get worse and worse i've been there and okay. it's like um, to give them a chance, um, and and not I and it, believe me, there's there's failures there I, there's failures that happen, but you don't stop doing. I'm not going to ever stop doing what I'm doing because of few failures. I mean, that's of course. it's going to happen. And you say, oh, this doesn't work. Look at this guy took advantage of you, and you helped him out three times. Well, that's great, but you know what about these twenty people over here that they it changed their lives forever? Okay, you know. 
I got it. Uh, we're going to leave it there. You've been very generous with your time. We've taken more than we should, and I'm thinking of the, all those people, and somebody's probably trying to call you, but you're a busy guy. But uh, it's, this is a great story. It's a great Christmas story, and uh, there's so many dimensions to it. We look forward to your book. If you get to Washington, come. We'd love to buy you lunch. Okay. Bring me, bring me another pillow. Bring me the new sheet. I, my Absolutely. wife just walked in the room. She's nodding. She knows what she's okay. supposed to get me for Christmas now. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Email, email me your address there, and right when we get off the phone, okay. I'll get them all sent out to you. We'll, we'll do it. Mike, thank you very much, and Merry Christmas yeah. to you. Merry yeah. Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless, and uh, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Uh, folks, I was uh, in uh, out west uh, just a few days ago, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, before that, I was out giving a speech, California, and a topic that kept coming up, I really don't knew very little about it, uh, but in a lot of conversations this came up, was the state's housing crisis, and I had no idea how bad it was. The Golden State used to be the American dreamland, uh, the, the, the place where you went west and bought a, bought a house and uh, changed your life uh, for the better. People flocked there for jobs, opportunity, perfect weather, maybe not so much anymore, question mark. Most people can't afford to live there, let alone raise a family there. They're leaving uh, and they're moving. Uh, where are they going? Uh, Nevada, Arizona, Texas. Places where housing is affordable. There's a housing problem. Uh, and it's uh, very important that we look at it. If California is our future, uh, for good or ill, and sometimes it has turned out to be our future for both good and for ill, um, it's very important to the well-being of this country that we figure this out. Um, someone I talked to in the last few days was particularly illuminating and helpful in this, and that's our friend, our colleague, Joel Farkas. He's the director of the American Strategy Group. Joel, how are you? Doing well, Bill. Good to, good to talk with you. All right. You're a Californian. Um, you live in California. What is the story with the housing crisis? Well, simply put, the, the housing crisis is beyond crisis because there is effectively no housing. Um, there's housing, as we've talked in the past, for, for very wealthy people who live on the coasts. Um, but California, um, by design, hasn't built any and doesn't appear to want to build any housing for, um, for their citizens. Uh, uh, in 2016, the entire state of California built about 50,000 single-family homes. Dallas and Houston built more. Really? Ba Dallas and Houston built more houses than California did? Correct. It's um, what happens when that occurs. Prices are astronomical. Um, there are we, we can start with the effect of, uh, of of poverty and homelessness. Uh, California has a distinction of being the have, have the greatest poverty rate in this in the United States. Um, most of the top twenty um, areas for homelessness in the United States are in California. Uh, you basically have a circumstance where if you are an average middle class, anything, uh, and that's even, it's even bad to say average or middle class, anything other than a wealthy American, you're not going to be able to build and own a home. And quite frankly, you're not going to be able to pay rent anymore. The, the rent, renting a, an apartment is not an option any longer. Let me interrupt you. Um, you said California didn't build as many houses as Dallas or Houston, and you just said you are not going to be able. It's people who build houses, right? It's it's construction companies that put the you know nails and the wood together, but it's individuals who make a decision. Is it not? I mean, why why can't they decide? Why can't you decide to build a house uh, unless you have a ton of money? What what's the obstacle? What's the problem? Uh, in California, there are about 45 governmental agencies that you need to get an approval of some sort from to build a house. Any um, house? Any house. Uh, there, you, you'll pay fees on average to, to uh, uh, local jurisdictions in the state of California. Fees 
of about $100,000. That doesn't count land. That's not um, a foundation. That's not anything other than a fee. That's the that's the impediment. Well, I want to build a. I'm just just baby steps for baby feet here. Uh, I want to build a house for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I have to pay a hundred thousand dollar fee. If you want to build a house for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you would have done that twenty five years ago in California. You you, you wouldn't do that today. I, I, it I wouldn't or I exist. couldn't. I wouldn't or I, it, it doesn't does exist. Ex- it doesn't. You could not. It does not exist. Yeah, well, I'm looking at my briefing. A, a, a median price home in the Golden State is $561,000. In San Francisco, a median priced home is $1.5 million. And, and in Silicon Valley, the, uh, the home of the, the smartest people in the world, um, you need to make $450,000 a year to, be, to buy a median price home in Silicon Valley. And it goes is, on go ahead. and on and on. This is because of the 45 requirements or regulations? That, that's what it is that the state has laid on the, the home builder? The state the uh, isn't necessarily the one who lays it on. It's, it's each, each individual jurisdiction, um, each municipality. The, the basic pretext of, of, of uh, California is not to have uh, home... If you, if we all probably remember uh, when people built a single-family home to live in the su- suburbs. The word for people who did that was they're participating in suburban sprawl. So this, it's been a pejorative for jurisdictions in the state of California to have anybody live in a reasonably priced single-family home. So what, what has been the, uh, uh, the reaction to that in local jurisdictions? And we're talking about San Diego, Los Angeles, um, uh, San Francisco, and then a lot of other jurisdictions in addition to that. The reaction is, um, we do not want that. We want um, we want to restrict any more housing. We have to housing in their nomenclature um, costs them money. They, what, what do they want? They want jobs. They want high tech jobs. They want big companies. They want uh, what what has been referred to as Let's encourage the, the knowledge economy. There was a, an urban planner named Richard Florida, 20-some years ago, wrote a book about new urbanism. The knowledge economy is going to increase the demand for people to live in urban areas. Well, those people are living in um, apartments that cost several thousand dollars a month for rent. Uh, I can tell you they are not buying a single-family home, and they're not raising children. And they're not; their children aren't walking to school. That circumstance doesn't and can, does not and cannot exist in a major metropolitan area in the United States. What does so, exist? What does I'm, exist in the? I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Is this a state disposition or a local jurisdiction disposition? You that Both. it's not the state that doesn't want you; it's the, it's the individual jurisdiction. That's question one. Question two, are you saying that it's more, it makes sense or economic sense the way things are set up in California to bring in a big company, uh, you know, that's going to, you know, do smart things in Silicon Valley than than a bunch of people buying individual houses? Is that what you're saying? Yes and yes. Now, the local jurisdiction, let's talk about uh, question one. Um, More so the local jurisdictions. Uh, they view a resident as costing them money, police, fire, paramedics, health care. They view a big business or, or, or a shopping mall or a car dealership as generating sales tax revenue. That's, that's euphemistically referred to the business of a city government. So housing is an afterthought. Reasonably priced housing is an afterthought. Um, and, and that is primarily driven by local jurisdictions. The state really doesn't have that much control over those decisions, but most of that control, control is in the hands of local government. So we're talking about, again, I, you know, I don't know a lot about this stuff, the economic value of, of land or the parcels of land. And, and these jurisdictions are saying, 
that's not a good economic use of land as far as we're concerned. It's better to have a shopping mall or a Silicon Valley company. Yes. Uh, an example, um, uh, the mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee, who just passed away last week. Right. Um, several years ago, he wanted to entice high-tech companies, Twitter, people like that, to San Francisco. He wanted to get them out of Silicon Valley, come to San Francisco. What did he do? He passed an ordinance to waive payroll taxes for high-tech companies. Not just the, the monthly salary, but any tax on any bonuses or stock options employees would get from the company. Um, that was specifically designed to bring a high-tech company to San Francisco. It had absolutely nothing to do with where those people would live. Now, simple economics, if you don't build anything or build very little of it, and you've doubled, tripled, and quadrupled the demand for it, the price is going to go up. Right. That hasn't if, changed. If you don't build it, <laughs> they will come, but it will cost them more. Yes. It's called access and price. Where, where even, the, the Nobel, even the Nobel laureate economists can agree on that. All right, <laughs> economists can agree. All right, I'm somewhat incredulous, as you can tell, but, but uh, and I, I won't apologize for it. What, what the heck are people supposed to do? I mean, you, you come there because you know you get a say, you get a good job offer. Where the heck are you supposed to live? Does it make any sense to build a huge, uh, thirty-story apartment building? Does that make more economic sense? No. Um, what has happened is, well, uh, uh, the housing prices have gone up precipitously in California, and also uh, Portland and Seattle and Washington, D.C. and New York. The other thing that's gone up precipitously is poverty and homelessness. Yeah. Every single one of yeah. these cities that I'm describing has the unique distinction of being in the top ten of the worst poverty and homelessness areas in the United States. Basically, um, somebody who is, who is something other than extremely wealthy or extremely poor has no place. The answer to your question, there is no place for them in those cities. Ex explain to in me... The, I'm sorry. No, go. Go ahead. I'm still having trouble getting my arms around it. That's, that was so important. Explain to me... First of all, I'm still puzzled by the individual jurisdiction. If it's an individual jurisdiction, how come the problem seems to be throughout California? But it's not unique to California. You just said it's the same in, in Oregon, Portland, uh, Seattle, etc., and New York. So is it in, in highly concentrated, highly taxed, highly regulated areas that we see this problem? Yes, it is. Um, the the The... Uh, the, the, the planner I mentioned that wrote books 20-plus years ago on new urbanism Florida. basically basically described that the, where people, need, people in the future are going to live is they're going to live in urban areas where there is highly concentrated knowledge uh, demand for knowledge-based uh, employees for the new knowledge economy. That's basically what where every single city planner and city manager went to listen to this. That's what they have been promoting, they being these major urban centers. Um, we fast forward to today. There's a major housing problem. Even these cities now admit they have a major, a disastrous crisis of housing. What, what is their initial reaction? Their initial reaction is the single-family home sites that we still currently have in our cities need to be eliminated. The solution, and this is a quote from an article recently written, the solution is the death of the single-family home. That is where uh, these major metropolitans are looking. They're looking at further exacerbating the problem by eliminating what, what, what land they what single-family homes so they can create more density. Now, does anybody believe, anybody believe that more density is going to reduce traffic? More density is going to reduce prices. More density is going to make housing more affordable. More density is going to allow yeah. families yeah. to raise kids and go to school. I can't find one 
example in the world, not only today, but in the history of the world, where that has occurred. But Joel, if 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 if, a, if an, an entity, a community, seeks to bring people in to maximize the amount of money, so they want to use this space um, uh, for you know a, a Silicon Valley or some something like that, and eliminate the single home, why isn't the same motivation operating in Dallas or Houston or or other places that you didn't mention? I mean, economics works same same in in all these places, doesn't it? I mean. Why should they build homes and not just create, uh, you know, uh, these dense entities which bring in more income? And yeah, we understand that may mean the end of the single-family home. Doesn't the economics work the same way, or or what's the difference between in those between those communities and the communities you've described, in either in governance or perspective or philosophy? The difference is philosophy. Uh, there, there's a rage of a certain group of people in this country that focuses on wealthy. And this rage, um, has, they, they, they look to uh, uh, economists who've won a Nobel Prize over the last 20 years as evidence that what is really needed in this country is a, a, a redistribution of wealth and an increased regulation to restrain capitalist, uh, the capitalist economy. There's really three basic issues people argue about. We have sluggish growth, we have um, uh, high debt, and we have what people refer to as income inequality. Those are the three hot topics that economists talk about. And virtually every economist likes to describe the solution as being um, redistribute money from the wealthy, restrict and uh, re- restrict and regulate so that uh, capitalism is, in, is is constrained. Though th- th- these these theories are from the, from Richard uh, Thaler, who just won the Nobel Prize this year, all the way back to Joseph Stiglitz in the early two thousands, and even prior to him, and Paul Krugman and uh, Angus Deaton. All of these economists agree on that one thing. Now. Uh, your question's a good one. Why do some people, why do some states and some cities do this one way and others do it another? Well, some of the states that do it a different way have looked at the empirical results of Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Washington, D.C., New York, and Chicago. And they say high taxes, confiscatory regulation does not work. It really is that simple. Some people look at that and say, this doesn't work, and we want to do something else. Okay. Does uh, this have anything to do with the fact that uh, these places need to charge more money? <laughs> um, if you spend a lot of money, you need to charge more. That is absolutely correct. So if you keep spending uh, unconstrained you're going to keep charging. Um, it has a lot to do with that. Uh, the issue that I'm talking about primarily, Bill, is what are the results if you do that? Um, I know that there's a lot of people who have a different viewpoint of what is, you know, what, what people should do. But the people that, that, that have these different viewpoints, they're, they're typically, I mean, it, it goes from the billionaires like Bill Gates who write on this subject to the academics, to the economists. They all are talking about this in a, in a position to be right, and, in, and, and, and the people who support them want them to be right. I want American citizens to succeed. I don't, I don't want them to view me and my position as being right. I want American citizens to succeed. And I like to offer just a different perspective. If you... We've been talking about the crisis. The interesting thing about the United States is we have a solution already. We don't even need the government to assist us with the solution. There's more than 100 cities in the United States that have jobs and housing and low costs and utilities and schools that all of the people that are, 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 are stuck in this uh, the, the, the situation can move to. You know, um, 
these cities that I mentioned, they're sanctuary, you know, people refer to them as sanctuary cities in all the, in the urban knowledge areas. Well, they're actually also sanctuaries of economic despair. People are hurting there, and the people that I'm describing that have a choice, the choice exists in the United States. You can get up and move, yeah, and you can move somewhere else. You can, you can have a great life. You do not need to debate someone who won a prize as to who's right or who's wrong. And it doesn't cost you to move. You're already paying 50 to 70% of your monthly income on housing. Goodness sake, no wonder Donald Trump won the presidency. He, 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 he was talking about get a job and have a good life, not whether or not asymmetric markets are measured properly, which is what you know one guy won the prize for. I got you. It's that simple. I, I, we, we need to we need to wrap here. I, I, do they do they understand this, uh, uh, or or is this one of these cases where you know it's just they have this a priori theoretical intellectual belief, so they're not going to budge? Do they understand that they're losing people? Do they understand? I just saw a stat that seventy five percent of the people who live in California cannot afford a house. That they're going to uh, lose people. They're going to lose, and they're going to lose. You know, it seems to me there's a little bit of here of wanting to, you know, wanting to wanting to kill the golden goose to get all the gold, and maybe that's exactly what they've done. I mean, I, I could certainly understand if I had, you know, um, you know, uh, three thousand square feet of space in some great place, it might be better to build a gold mine than a, uh, you know, than a house. But um, you can't just keep doing that, and because. You're gonna you're not gonna have any place for people to live, and people can't live. They're gonna go somewhere else. <laughs> um, it's mystifying to me. Uh, Bill Gates, who, who uh, has a foundation that studies and pays for people to study this topic, uh, everyone would agree he's you know the first or second richest guy in the world. Very smart, uh, you know, forward thinking. He, he published this year the, the top five books that he read in 2017. One of them was a book called Evicted, which talks about people getting evicted from their homes and not being able to afford a home. And in, 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 in this year, in his own words, he was mystified by the connection of housing and poverty. And he... And he and he said he and Melinda are, are really want to look and study this more. Yeah. And they want to give their foundation to give more money to get more data. Well, if the if the richest, smartest guy in the United States just figured out this year that housing's an issue, I don't know. Of course, the the other guys probably. I don't know why they can't figure it out, but, but that's what that's what we're we're met with. I w- I would like okay. to tell the American people. You're not, you're, not, you're not a statistic to be modeled. You're not a focus group to be interviewed for a book. You get the right to make your choices, and the choices for you exist in the country today. Okay. Okay, gold rush is on. It's going in the opposite direction, it seems to me. This is amazing. This is really amazing. I hope the rest of the country can learn from this. You know uh, Bill Gates was at Harvard when I was, and I tried to get him to stay and finish his degree. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I counseled him to stay, and maybe maybe I was right after all. I, I did say the guy's not going to amount to anything. I don't think I was right about that. <laughs> but uh, but I did say I think you'll be better. <laughs> maybe, maybe you would have taken a course in common sense or something. What you're or saying is in, true. Uh, well, at least an urban planning course, maybe, yeah, or something. Yeah. But uh, he's, done, he's done okay. He's done yeah, okay. no, I got it. This is fascinating. And this is, you know, this is part, this is the American dream, and, and God knows the American reality. Joel, thank you for this primer. I think we want to keep talking about this and related topics. We appreciate your, your insights very, very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, it's time to turn to one of my favorite portions of the show, my ongoing conversation with Steve Wynn. Steve is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, and he's finance chair of the RNC. One of the reasons I spend so much time with Steve is because there are a few figures like him in American life today. 
He's built some of the finest hotels and resorts in the world. He employs tens of thousands of Americans, and he has an ability to tell stories and explain complex issues in ways that few other people can. And unless you're staying in one of his hotels, you rarely get to hear his voice elsewhere in the media. So it's a real treat to have my ongoing conversation with Steve. In today's segment, he continues his master class on immigration and why we should use immigration to improve the quality of our republic and restore respect for the law. Two ideas that our president embraces as well. Here's Steve. When you don't have any kind of a control on the kind of people that you let into the country, well, then you have to accept the consequences. But when people are not born here and they want to come to the United States, you have a wonderful opportunity to try and upgrade the quality of our society. Why not? And if you want to be a very open country, then have a very large appetite for immigration. But still, look for quality. See if you can make a better life for the citizens that are here by the quality of the people that you add to the population. What could be more commonsensical than that? Right. We don't want to turn back immigration. We want to improve the quality of it and and restore respect for the law. You know, when they had prohibition, everybody ignored it. It was very, very bad for America. So when you have disrespect for the law that Obama encouraged by opening the borders for, uh, illegally, and the court said it was illegal, he, he fostered disrespect for the law. And the only thing that protects our, our, our Latin population or our African-American population or the white population is the rule of law. Yes, sir, that is correct. And I think that the, that the Hispanic population is as aware of that as anybody. Yeah, I do too. I so, do too. So, so they don't like drug dealers and people jumping the borders. They, like, they came here legally, most of them. <clears throat> and I think they respect the, the point of view that, that I was expressing that I believe the president has developed now. I agree. Your mention of prohibition, which was widely disregarded, the law brings to mind that line of Ring Lardner. Do you ever hear it? And he said, prohibition was better than no liquor at all. <laughs> it's a great line, isn't it? Why did he say it? I don't it's know. Funny. He's just being funny. He's a good writer, you know. <clears throat> what a what a conversation fellas, men and women like you and I are having on these topics today. And what to make of all of it. Education sure is important. You've got to sift through a lot of information to make it these days. The trouble is you don't know which part of the information is true, what part false, unless you've got some kind of independent ability to edit things. We get it from your family. You get it from your teachers. <laughs> you used to be able to get it from your teachers. Well, that's right. But I, the most important, I think, is a real study of history. The kind of thing that you wrote. Hist- historians, historians give us the ability currently to put our country and our history in perspective. And with that perspective, we are better able to measure the moments of our own lives and hopefully come to conclusions about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad with our feet on the ground instead of being planted firmly in thin air. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a sentence that I think adds, makes sense to me. It's a academic-y, because the guy who wrote it was an academic, but a very smart academic. It says a lot to me. I'd just like you to listen to it and comment. It says, for an individual to be successful, as well as a society, the forces of composition have to outweigh the forces of decomposition. Right. Think about boys growing up. You know Elaine and me. We have two sons. They're good. They're fine. They're successful. Sure. But it was a struggle. Not all the time. But, you know, there were impulses, as there were for me and you, to do things that, you know, went over the line. 
and you have to rein them in. So what happens when the forces of decomposition govern? What happens when, you know, families fall apart and, you know, and, and I remember when I was drug czar, the first visit I made was to Detroit, and I said to a judge, you know, what's going on? I went to Detroit because it was the worst problem in the country then, and then D.C. passed it up. But judge told me a story I never forgot. He said, I sentenced these young men, and I say to them, young man, didn't anyone ever teach you the difference between right and wrong? And he said, and they look at me, and they say, no, sir. He said, and he pointed at me, he said, and that's the problem, Mr. Bennett. I'm the end of the line. I mean, civilization is put together by all these forces you're talking about. But supposing it collapses and you can't count on the schools and you can't count on other of the composing forces, but the forces of decomposition govern. The statement is true. The causal relationship of these things is undeniable. And the conclusion we come to is that civilized people cannot let that happen. Right. And so, as it has always been, there is a struggle between the compositional and decompositional forces within us, both as individuals and as a society. And I think, I think that's what we started with today. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's as good a way to finish as any. It's great. You know what that is in Greek? The psychomachia. The struggle in the psyche between the forces, the good and, for, and evil forces. Our show La Rev is about that. Yes, it is. <laughs> Scared the hell out of me. Scares the hell out of me. <laughs> Elaine loved it, and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> By the way, folks, La Rev is a great show, and it is scary. At least it was to me. It didn't scare my wife, but it scared me. It's usually the other way around. But if you're in Las Vegas, you should see it. Steve designed a lot of it himself. He has that gift of great administrators. No job too large or too small. He's got his hands in everything in his resorts. The rooms, the restaurants, the shows. It's really impressive and a great example. Okay, folks, that's another great show in the books. We have to leave it there for today. Have a wonderful Christmas, and I'll talk to you next week.